Today's reading is from Psalm 118, verses 19 to 29. You can find it on page 436 in the Pew Bible. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. Good morning. It's wonderful to see so many of you today. And happy Palm Sunday. This is a joyful day. By my last day in high school, I had made it an annual tradition of evading the incessant call to audition for my school's annual spring play. I was really adept at not even giving a thought to it. I wasn't necessarily good at sports, but I considered myself more of a soccer player or a trackster than a performing artist. Now, with, with much less effort, I also managed to evade developing the faintest desire to join the school choir or to sing in public. I'd made an art of singing in church with such a whisper that I am sure that, that only God himself could hear the, the songs coming out of my lips. So you would expect, given my extensive experience and training and desire, that I would fight tooth and nail to have my name in lights as the lead role in not just the last spring play of my high school career, but the last musical of my high school career. And yet, that was my fate. I blame it on having friends. See, my friend's mom was the play director, and she was desperate. No one had auditioned for the part of Beast in Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> and auditions were closed now. She told me this in private conversation. Kyle, I think you were made for the part. <laughs> uh-huh. The Beast. <laughs> no, really, she said. Don't, don't think about it as an insult. Not everyone could communicate the regret of wrongdoing, the torment of a curse, becoming an object of fear, the hope and heartbreak of love lost, such complexity, such emotion. You're the guy. Now, it probably didn't help that Disney Channel had basically given me a narrative framework in the person of Zac Efron to imagine the possibilities. And so I agreed with the compliance of a borderline or a border collie of a dog. I won't tell you how it went, except that it was not a life-changing event for me that led to an unexpected but fulfilling career in performing arts. 
I'm quite certain that my, my performance will fade into distant memory when, when some other beast comes up and captures the, the deep complexity of that role. I jest. It, it was fine. It, it, that's all I should say. It went fine. Um, I might have learned a, two, a thing or two about being dramatic in that, um, in that class. Now, during Holy Week, we have been asked to play a part in a musical. Just think about it. You've been asked to play a part in a musical. There, there's a drama at hand, and the actors are few. So let's pass out the imaginary scripts. Holy Week is a historical rendition of the last week of Jesus's life. It is a week-long musical that is fairly dramatic. I mean, Christians sing a lot this week. They eat things like parsley dipped in salt water. They sit in a darkening room as things get pitch black and silent, and we feel the weight of fear and terror. We're asked to step into the role of the crowds in Jerusalem, step into the role of the disciples, sometimes step into the role of the religious leaders and the soldiers. Each role is a little complex, but I think you are just the person for the role. We're asked to suspend our knowledge of Easter Sunday, or at least move it out of focus as an exercise of, as an exercise of faith to understand what our role was in bringing Jesus to the cross, to understand how we share in the world's sin and guilt. There are no faithful disciples being cast today. There is no one who is trusty and true. Don't we have a lot in common with the crowds and the disciples? Now the musical begins with a royal procession into the royal city, uh, Palm Sunday. And this week, in, in just a few days, it's the same amount of time it took for Jesus processing into the city to be betrayed and crucified. Do you think about that? That the timeline actually tracks. And we quickly descend into a dark and hopeless place on Good Friday. Before we get there, let's stay here today. Let's stay here today on Palm Sunday and dive deeply into Psalm 118, this psalm of triumphal entry. Let me take, make a few general comments about the psalm before we dive into it. Um, psalm 118 is a call to thanksgiving for national deliverance. We just read the last few verses, but the whole psalm is one of thanksgiving because God has saved Israel. God has delivered Israel from her enemy, and the victorious Israelite army returns to worship. And I'll argue, offer sacrifices in the temple. We're not sure which battle this is. We're not sure who the leader is. Five times throughout the Psalms, we're bid to proclaim his love endures forever. In verses 10 to 14, I'll just invite you to look at them quickly. The king speaks for Israel as a nation in a singular voice. Nations surrounded me on every side, and he repeats this three times, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. This is the voice of a king speaking for a nation. It's the same singular voice that the king speaks. Um, I believe it's verse 14. 
The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. That's the language of the Song of Moses. So after they'd crossed over the Red Sea, that is the song that Israel, Moses, and the, the entire camp sing. Um, in verse 15 onward, other voices continue, and they say three times, the Lord's right hand, blank, blank, blank. That's straight from the, this this event when Moses and the Israelite army, they, they, or the Israelite camp, moved across um, the Red Sea. Prior to the verses we're going to be focusing on, the Israelite armies, they're called the righteous, um, they take joy as survivors, and they make their way into the holy city in a song of victory. It's some festive, festival occasion. Um, if you look into commentaries, they'll say that it might have been one of three events, um, pa Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, because these are the three uh, pilgrimages um, that, that culminate in a, in a feast in the city of Jerusalem. Now, in our passage, we, we see a meeting of two parties. Um, there's a greeting. So there's one party that we've already been introduced to. There's the king and the army. Um, the other party uh, is already in the city. They're greeting the king and his army that are returning. Um, and they say at the end, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love, his, his love endures forever. That's the way the, the, the psalm opens and closes. Um, so as I dive into this psalm, I'm going to pick apart phrases um, that highlight what I, I'm going to say is the meaning and the connection to the triumphal entry from, from this passage. Um, this, this meaning that finds its way into the minds of the disciples um, and in a different way um, into the mind of God, who's the playwright in all of this. We know um, that from his ministry, Jesus identified with the language of the psalm, the, the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus uses that language of himself. Um, and we know from his ministry that he came to fulfill all right, righteousness. We know that this, this festive procession, as the text calls it, um, in this passage is really a, a ritual sacrifice leading up to the, the horns on, on the altar. And we'll get into that more because I think I have to unpack that a little bit. But what we see is a first telling, right, of, of David. Um, and then there's the disciples' retelling of that story through that same lens. And, and in that lens, the, the David, the king, comes to the city with his guilt offering in tow. In the second telling, which is God's telling, actually the king and the offering are one and the same. And the triumph is, is before him and not behind him. Um, so, so there are two tellings of this story. And, and to walk us through this, I'm going to guide us with three images. So this passage has three images, gates, a stone, and a horn, or horns. So the gates, the stone, and the horn. Um, the first image that I want you to picture is, is the image of closed gates. So they're not these big wide gates that are open. Actually, they're closed in our passage. The king and his army wait outside and call in. So that's how our passage starts in, in 19. Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks to you. I will give thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. So the psalm has in mind the, the, the temple, right? That's, or, or perhaps the court around the tabernacle, depending on, on who this king is. The gates of righteousness, the gates of the Lord. 
When the king, though he's triumphant on the battlefield, he stands with his army and calls out to this set of gates, vowing an offering of thanksgiving. Um, I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. Now, that's how things were done in the Old Testament. Um, offerings were made that could bring a person back into right relationship with God. Um, and that brings into focus a challenge in our passage. Well, well, it may seem that the temple guards owe a great debt to this army, right? Even God might owe this king some, some reward. It's not out of merit that this king or the army approached the house of the, of the Lord. The New Testament says it's by, by grace we, we approach. And, and the Old Testament word for, for approaching was actually, I think, I think of it as hospitality, right? God opening his home, though we're not fit for his courts. He gives us safe access to his presence through means of penitence and atonement. He helps us clean off our shoes, shower, put on clean clothes. Um, I had a friend growing up uh, who lived on the beach, and it was great during the summer. So we would go swimming, we'd run around, we'd get our, key, our feet totally caked with dust, we'd carry loads of sand on us. But we were not allowed to go back in the house right, until we'd gone through the outdoor shower. There was an outdoor shower, and only once we'd done that, only once after that we changed into new clothes, we were allowed to go in the house. This is a lot like Old Testament hospitality. The sacrificial system was the outdoor shower. Now, the challenge in, in this, the Old Testament, and it's seen in the ambiguity of verse 20, is this, right? This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I mean, it seems as though there's a condition placed on even entering the outdoor shower, because either we're righteous before we enter the place that can make us righteous, or it seems like we're forbidden entry. Well, that's an ambiguity. Um, but the, we, we hear the challenge elsewhere in other Psalms like this, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand on his holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has, hasn't lifted his soul to vanity or sworn deceitfully. I mean, who can say that? We often begin our call to confession in that way. So, do the gates open or do they remain closed? That's the question I'm going to leave in your mind because that's the first picture we have of closed gates and a call, open up these gates. The second image we have is a foundation stone. Um, so the, the, the cornerstone on a big building, that's something that's very important for the integrity of the building. Let's read this in verses 22 to 24. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So I want you to consider something. Um, we do have a New Testament to interpret this, but I, I want you to think about being an Israelite, singing these words, and, and who are the builders? And what is the cornerstone a reference to? Let's imagine a couple options. One option is David, right? So maybe David's the cornerstone. If, if this is a Psalm of David, then he could have been the rejected cornerstone. Uh, it's a way of saying that Israel rejected David's leadership, preferring Saul's. But David was brought to ascendancy through the will and power of God. We've studied the person of David, and we've seen how he was not just born of Jesse, nor was he the first uh, person that was chosen by the prophet Samuel. He was an unlikely king. Um, but he would have, he would be the king to unify Israel. And it was his line that was promised by God to continue eternally. And so it could be said that this stone 
though rejected, has become the cornerstone uh, of central importance to building Israel. A second option for this psalm, of what this psalm has in mind for the cornerstone, is the, the nation of Israel. Perhaps this psalm has in view that God's redemptive plan to bring salvation to the world through Israel. Um, though it's small, right, it's rejected and despised by other nations, neighboring superpowers, Israel is the most important building block on God's uh, building block in God's plan. Um, though this is possible within the scope of redemptive history to see it this way, I'm less convinced that in this passage we have uh, something saying it's not a message for the nations. This is almost a message of deliverance from the nations. Um, I'm I'm not totally convinced that that's even a viable option. Another one, another option is that this is in reference to God's covenant. Isaiah references the cornerstone in this way. He foresaw a time where Jerusalem, the builders would reject the covenant of God and the, and the protection of God, and they'd say in an ironic boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. A time would come when Israel would feel overwhelmed by the threats of invasion and attack. They'd rather enter into alliance with foes than assume a faithful God. In that day, Isaiah imagined Israel erecting a refuge of lies to hide in. I mean, in this context, God says that he sends judgment and punishment as he sees fit, but that he would lay a tested stone in the city of his temple. This is, this is what he says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with pain. I mean, in that context, it seems like God is referring to his faithfulness through the covenant. Um, and fidelity through the covenant is the cornerstone. Now, these are all possible. And actually, I'm not going to sort out which one was, is most likely. Um, but let's remember this is, this is a, a messianic psalm. And so it finds its fulfillment outside of the context from which it's written, which means there's a first interpretation, there's a second interpretation. Actually, the second interpretation is the greater one, the truer one, the one that fits mo most closely. I mean, Jesus applies the metaphor of the cornerstone to himself. I mean, isn't that significant? He is the cornerstone. And Israel's leaders are the builders that reject him. I mean, Jesus teaches this in relation to the Pharisees. He says that the Pharisees reject my leadership or reject who I am, reject me as the Christ. I mean, this is pa uh, Peter's favorite messianic portrait. This, this phrase ha occurs five times in the New Testament. Uh, it's, a, it's a significant theme. Um, Jesus is the stone, the chief stone, the cornerstone, the most important stone. Um, and what this means is clarified in the third image, the horns. Right, so we have an, a picture of closed gates. So we have a picture of, of an important stone. And now we have a picture of horns. Uh, the procession has a destination, and it is to the horns of the altar. Let's work uh, our way there from verses 25 on to 27. O oh Lord, save us. O oh Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns, the horns of the altar. Now, I'm going to take a quick uh, break. 
and, and go to this moment where Jesus is processing into the city, right? To quickly draw our attention plainly. When Jesus comes into the city, he's greeted with the same words that this psalmic king was greeted with when he returned from victorious battle. Hosanna, it means save us now. Our psalm in verse 18, oh no, sorry. Our verse, someone whispered 25. It's not 25, is it? Oh yeah, it is 25. Um, the verse 25 um, puts it plainly, like, Lord save us, O Lord grant us success. Now, the people uh, greet Jesus on his way into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is verse 26 exactly. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and in Mark, they add another one. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, that's curious, right? That's, that's seeming to actually draw the connection at a deep theological level. So they're taking the, the passage and applying it in a, in a deep, meaningful way beyond the exact words of our passage. I mean, whether David's the returning king of our passage or not, we know that David's lineage is the one attached to eternal promise. This is the one that Israel's Messiah would come out of. The triumphal entry sounds a lot like this passage. And, and like actors with a script in hand, those who greet him and enter the city, they greet him in the place of a victorious king. So, coming back to our psalm, in verse 27, there's an invitation. With bows in hand, join the festal procession. Well, we just did that, didn't we? We, we played our part. Um, and actually, I think it's worth saying that that is likely a tradition that does not come from this passage. Um, and in fact, bows in hand isn't the best translation here. Um, the word translated bows can, although very rarely, means branches. More often, it means cords, as in a rope. And so you're thinking in your mind, someone's carrying a rope, they're going to build a tire swing. That's, that's the right image to have. But it's a truly odd ordering of words that we have in Hebrew, and that is often the case in Hebrew poetry. But I'll read it, and I want to I see what you make of it. God, God, he makes light shine on us tie them pilgrim feast cords to the horns of the altar. I'll read that again. That's my translation. Um, I've never been asked to translate the Bible, by the way, but I think I can do a pretty good job. So God, God, he makes light shine on us, tie them pilgrim feast cords to the horns of the altar. I mean, those words in that order they sound like a ritual sacrifice to me on a festive occasion, does it not? The total phrase, I think, is better translated, bind with cords and, and join the procession. And approach the horns of the altar of the Lord, the four corners of the altar turned up like animal horns. And so it's an admonition to bind the implied animal sacrifice with, with cords and join in the festal procession up to the place where that animal gets sacrificed. I mean, suddenly the problem of the gates of righteousness are put into perspective, right? The army does not bring with them a righteousness of their own. They're not meritorious from battle. They're not lauding their own achievements at becoming the cornerstone. They don't deserve the gates to be opened before them. The king here 
even needs his friend's mom to unlock the outside shower to clean up before coming inside from the beach, there are animals being bound here, brought in procession into the temple courts and into a place of sacrifice. That's where you see gates and horns. That's where the context where the, go, the, the gates open up is, is when people approach with a sacrifice in hand. That's, that's at least the image we're invited to consider. But then what of the stone? You know, as, as Jesus approached Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the crowds echoed Psalm 118, shouting, God save us! Hosanna! Jesus intentionally uses this tradition and the image of the victorious king to communicate his role as the stone the builders rejected. I mean, as we study this, we realize that it predicts not only the events of Palm Sunday, but more wholly the work of Christ. I love what one commentator said about the unexpected fulfillment of this passage. I might read it twice. It's not necessarily um, meant to be spoken. It's a little bit funny in its syntax. What those who took part in such a ceremony could never have foreseen was that, was that it would one day suddenly enact itself on the road to Jerusalem, unrehearsed, unliturgical, and with explosive force. In that week, when God's realities broke through his symbols and shadows, the horns of the altar became the arms of the cross. And the festival itself found fulfillment in Christ our Passover. I'll read that last line again. In that week, when God's realities broke through his symbols and shadows, the horns of the altar became the arms of the cross. And the festival itself found fulfillment in Christ our Passover. I mean, of comfort to you and me, and in a very real sense, when Jesus, our King, came into the city, he came not simply as a king free, uh, returning from battle, calling, let me in that I might atone for my sins and fellowship with my God. I mean, he came bound, submitting himself to the well-known process of animal sacrifice, not merely as a king, but on our behalf for the sake of you and me so that we might enter those gates of righteousness. He came bound. He submitted himself to this. When he came into the city, he, he saw the cross before him. So what part do we play as we remember these events unfolding? As we assume our part, where we pick up our script, where we replay the Passion Week drama again? Well, today we sing praises. We look forward in hope. We rehearse the arrival of Christ who comes as King. We even rehearse the arrival of the return of the coming King. Because perhaps, in a sense, that was just a rehearsal as well. <laughs> and we let ourselves ask that question again. Wait, I needed him to do what for me? I needed him to do what for me? Let's pray. Lord, we are removed 2,000 years from this moment um, that we 
remember every year. Uh, we remember in a worship service context where we give you glory and honor and we say thank you. Um, we remember this because, in fact, you came into the city as a king. Um, we didn't give you a very good procession as a true king, but you came into the city as a king and you knew what needed to be done as our king. Lord, I pray that we would experience the weight of that afresh, recognizing the irony of, of a king who, who laid his life down for his subjects. And I pray that we would draw close to you as you draw close to us, um, because that is what the cross is. is. It's, it's you saying you, you want us you want us to, to put our sin aside so that we, we can approach you, we can have a relationship with you, we can spend eternity with you, um, we can experience the, this, this depth of love that you have experienced forever within the Trinity. Lord, we thank you for the cross, which makes this possible. In Christ's name, amen.